Hello there. Welcome to a brand new Arseblog Arsecast right here on Arseblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thanks for being here as always. It's very much appreciated. We're heading into a, a weekend where we play Chelsea. Yes, it's a big game against Chelsea. Coming on the back of two other big games, away at Anfield and away at Stoke, in which we uh, we drew both, only took two, two points, points from, from six. six. Hello? Hello? Who? What's going on here? What did I do? I pushed something. Was it this? It was that. Oh, I didn't know you could do that. Hello? Oh, look. And if you do that, it's doing all this. Hello? Okay, I'll, I'll turn that off now. But yeah, Sunday. Sunday, we're playing Chelsea. Assuming, of course, that Sky don't, you know, see fit to change the fixture at short notice. I mean, it's not as if they don't have any track record of that. If you, uh, if you missed it yesterday, Thursday, the Arsenal game against Leicester was moved from Saturday, the 13th of February, at 3 o'clock. A nice 3 o'clock kickoff on a Saturday. You know those things? We used to have them quite a lot, but not anymore. But anyway, Sky changed the date of that game. Uh, they moved it from the Saturday afternoon to Sunday morning. Well, Sunday at midday. Now, the issue with that, of course, was that um, many people... Uh, had booked flights and booked hotels because back in December, Sky picked their games. Television fixtures were announced for February. They were all all picked and it was all announced and people with some degree, and I say some degree, they knew that, you know, it's always possible for the TV companies to do this. You know, they booked their flights and they booked their trains and they booked their hotels and they booked all the things that you do when you go to a football game. Uh, Football, of course, as much as we uh, appreciate the fact that Arsenal are a London club, fans come from far and wide, from all over the UK, from Ireland every weekend, uh, from all over Europe, from all over the world world they come uh, to these games so basically what sky have done by moving this game at such short notice is fuck a whole load of those people like they've completely fucked up their weekends and travel plans and tickets and flights and trains and all the things that you need to do uh, to get to arsenal They've made a complete bollocks of it, not just for people coming from abroad, people from inside the UK as well who will be coming uh, by train and will have booked those in advance to try and get some reasonably priced train tickets because uh, I think I was listening to the Tuesday Club. Yes, it was the Tuesday Club podcast this week and uh, the guy was saying that it costs 50-something quid to get from Brighton to London return. What the fuck? That's bananas. And train prices across the UK seem extortionate. Like, you can probably fly anywhere in the world for the price it uh, costs to get a train from London to Edinburgh. I don't know. So all those people are are hugely inconvenienced. And on Wednesday, I'm going to the Leicester game. And on Wednesday, I'd been waiting and waiting and waiting, you know. Uh, I sort of had it half in the back of my mind that they might change it. But, of course, the the picks were made in December. And then we're sort of only three weeks away from the game. I thought, nah, nah, I'm pretty safe. I'll do it. So I booked my flights to come over on the Saturday and then yesterday they changed the flights. So, you know, fuck, fuck you. you. Yeah, sorry, I couldn't resist putting the thing back on for that. Um, but surely, 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 as much as we know that TV calls the shots and he who pays the piper calls the tune or whatever the hell that saying is about pipers and tunes, um, you know, surely there ought to be like a mandatory period after which they cannot change the date of a game, you know, to give people the chance to uh, to make their travel plans and make their arrangements like a month out. I think that's short, but you could deal with a month 
because there's still a bit of time, of course, to book your whatever you need to book and try and get some value because, you know, it's an expensive business. People want to get the best value. They want to get the, the cheapest plane tickets or the cheapest train tickets. They want to get good value on a hotel room if they're staying, uh, you know, staying over or staying the weekend, that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden it changes with just three weeks to go to the game. That doesn't seem right to me. And I'm all for all the campaigns about how 20's plenty and, and making football more affordable to all the fans. I think those are highly commendable and highly worthy campaigns. But there ought to be one about this as well. Again, I'll stress, this isn't just about, you know, me flying from Ireland to London or people who are flying from all over the world. As many of us as there are, you know, we represent a small percentage of the people who go to games. Uh, and it's happened uh, time and time again where games have been moved. I think there was one last year, wasn't there? A whole game with just three weeks to go before the game. And it was moved from a Saturday evening to Monday night. Actually, that was another one that uh, I think uh, the guys at Arsenal America were going to have this big weekend of stuff going on. Uh, and I was going to go to America. I had flights booked and everything for that. And then they moved the the game with not much notice. And all of a sudden, all those plans are out the window because nobody can do a thing on a Monday night because, you know, people have got to work. Whereas if it's a Saturday afternoon or Saturday evening kickoff, you can make plans around that. You've got Sunday to do things, you know. And I know that, uh, you know, a lot of the Arsenal fans who were traveling away to that game had already booked their trains, had already booked uh, hotels because by the time the game was over, there was no train back and those kind of things. You know, so it's not just uh, traveling uh, international fans that are inconvenienced by these things. It's the people that go home and away every week. And it's fucking ridiculous, really. So there has to be a period of at least four weeks, probably six weeks, after which they cannot change the date and time of the game. Uh, They, of course, have all the power. The clubs don't seem to do very much at all. They get another big chunk of money, of course, because they're going to be on TV, on live TV. So, you know, what difference does it make to them? The tickets are all sold at this point. So, you know, it's not as if the clubs are doing very much about it either. So it'd be good if there was some kind of concerted effort on behalf of fans groups. And I don't just mean the Arsenal fans groups, but, you know, for for all the clubs, because this is something that doesn't just affect Arsenal fans. It's affecting Leicester fans, of course. It's affecting uh, fans of every club every week in the Premier League. Fans are being completely inconvenienced for the benefit of television. Television, of course, pays the money and therefore they have all this power. But if there was some kind of concerted effort to say, we need a minimum time period after which you can't change, then maybe something would happen. But at the moment, there just seems to be outpourings of frustration and invective, completely understandably, but nothing organized, no no kind of campaign or movement or anything like that. So uh, maybe that's something that, that people could um, you know get behind. I'm sure people would get behind that. Ultimately, if they make it more and more difficult and more and more expensive for fans to actually attend football matches, they won't have a product that's worth televising. And that's something that they should, you know, really bear in mind. Will they? Will they? Mm, I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. Um, So look, that's that, which is annoying. What else happened this week? Oh, it was a bit of a traumatic week for me, actually. I don't know if I can share this without, you know, getting emotional. But I'll try. I'll do my best, right? We all have favorite things, don't we? Yeah, we all do. Whether it's a t-shirt or a child. Yeah, come on. You've got a favorite child. If you've got more than one, you've got a favorite. That's, you know, it's fine. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying that we all have, we all have favorite things that we own. 
And we do own our children the same way we own pets and cars and things. You, you have to. That's the mindset you've got to take. I'm just saying. But anyway, I've got two pairs of jeans that I wear all the time. Both of them are my favorites. One is slightly more my favorite than the other. And both of them this week have developed kind of, um, you know, holes uh, sort of in the, the gooch area. You know, the sort of underneath bit. I think it's because I've been cycling more than I used to. Anyway, I didn't cycle for years. You know, I used to cycle everywhere uh, around town and what have you. But, you know, stopped doing that. But then the Mug Smasher gave me a bike and, you know, I've been pedaling in around. It's great. The freedom, the we- apart from when you're cycling into the wind, which is one of the most annoying things in the entire world. Cycling headfirst into the wind on a slightly uphill gradient. That's really fucking annoying. I hate that. But, you know, unfortunately, home is uphill and against the wind after I cycle into town. But anyway, I'm, I'm thinking that it was, it's the cycling. It's the saddle that's doing something to my two favorite pairs of jeans. And I was walking along today thinking, Jesus, it's a bit colder than I would have thought. I'm feeling a little bit, you know, a little bit uh, chilly in areas that it's a graft, you know. Then I checked and I was like, oh, luckily I was wearing a coat that kind of, um, you know, covered it. But that's annoying, isn't it? Now I have to like either get them repaired and I don't think, you know, based on where the, you know, the, the openings are that they, you know, they stand for repairing. I'm going to have to get like new jeans. And that's, that's annoying, especially in January when nobody has any money to buy any new jeans. So I'm just going to have to like, I don't know, we could get use some sackcloth and wrap them around the legs of the jeans or, you know, staple it to the insides of them. I don't know until such time as I can get new ones. So there you go. I managed to get through that without weeping, breaking down and, and crying. I was thinking about it. You know, I really like these jeans. I haven't even had them that long. It's not even one of those pairs that's been, you know, worn into the ground. I don't know. Things these days, they don't make them to last, do they? No. You know who had the right idea when it came to clothes? Knights. They wore armor. What was the worst that could happen there? You know, get a bit rusty. But that was it. That was long-lasting clobber. Not the greatest for walking around in, all a bit clunky and what have you, but man, that stuff lasted. I remember when I was in New York last year, in the Met, and they had like armor from the 1500s and Japanese armor from the 1200s and all kinds of stuff. It was great. So I think I might just invest in some armor, walk around like that. Probably get a few, uh, you know, funny looks on the street. But what do I care? If someone starts on me, I'm wearing armor. Probably have to, you know, bring a mace or a sword or something. That's fashion, though, isn't it? You've got to have the right, uh, what do they call them? Accessories. That's right. Anyway, look, I'll ponder on that for a little while. And what we might do in the meantime is get on with this week's show. And uh, joining me to discuss all the bits and pieces of the week that was, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show from the Times, Rory Smith, Football Supporters Federation Writer of the Year. Congratulations on the award. That's very kind of you. That's, uh, that, people don't introduce me like that often enough. Yeah, got to admit it, it doesn't. It doesn't soothe my ego, which is, which is the aim of everything. So thank you very much. That's very kind of you. That's okay. You should wear the you should wear the award around your neck like some kind of Ali G medal. You know. Yeah, like a like a like not not Grandmaster Flash, the other one. Uh, yeah, exactly. Some sort of kind of flavor phase. That's something. That's so, yeah, the guy. Like that one of those big. Yeah, like a big medallion. I, I probably should, although it would hurt. <laughs> They're big, big, heavy things, all right. But look, uh, we'll move on before your your ego goes um, Bentner or something <laughs> like that to those levels. Um, I, I want to start by reminding you of um, 
a BBC uh, appearance that you were on and I was on in the, I think it was August 2014, and it was heading towards the end of the transfer window, and I was on, and we, we were talking, um, there was a panel discussion about how Arsenal were in the, in real need for a new central defender. And I said something, and then you said, um, I, I don't know if you know this, but um, he's use, he's going to use Nacho Monreal as the fourth mm. choice centre half for, the, for that particular season, because he had... Um, uh, per Mertesacker, Lauren Koscielny. Was it Tom? No, Thomas from Ireland had gone at that point, hadn't he? So there was it was Callum Chambers, Kualachi. maybe. He must have been Kualachi. No, I think it was Ahid well oh, gone. So I think it could have even been young Callum Chambers was the, the, okay. the third choice. And you said, I have it on good authority that he's going to use Nacho Monreal there as and when he might be required. And it was like, uh-oh. That doesn't sound very good. And, you know, it, it probably wasn't very good. Uh, but but it seems to have been a good thing for Nacho Monreal, who since that period at centre-half has has reclaimed the position uh, as Arsenal's number one left-back and, and really hasn't looked back. He's looked a much better defender. Do you know, I, um, I love stories like Nacho Monreal because when he signed, he was really highly rated. He'd done really well at Osasuna. And then he kind of turned up and there was that kind of disappointment that you get when you realise that the, player, the most recent signing that you've made isn't the world's greatest footballer and he is human and has flaws. So everyone kind of wrote him off and then he seemed to be kind of the... He, for a while, he was, he was just sort of, sort of decent backup to Kieran Gibbs and occasional central defender when there were loads of injuries. But I think he has been one of the... one of He's probably pushing it to say he's been one of the stories of the season. But he has been so remarkably consistent this year and so kind of impressive and cool and composed and it's, I don't know him, I've never spoken to Nacho Monreal. He's not one of those players that, that we sort of wait for in the mid zone with bated breath. And you've got to find out what Nacho Monreal thinks. <laughs> but he, it, it's, it's, a really, it's a really impressive story, I think. The, the, kind of, the kind of story that goes under the radar a little bit, because he is a left-back, he's not spectacular. But he, he has won that, he's not even reclaimed it, he's won that position when no one thought he'd get it. Gibbs is now clearly second choice, I would say, and Gibbs is a good defender, albeit with those injury problems. But I think it's, I don't want to say heartwarming because it's too cheesy, but it's really kind of it's really nice to see that Monreal has kind of three years after they signed him has has not just come good. He's delivered on on what Wenger saw in him. It's it's kind of a triumph for patience, both from manager and player, I guess. Mm, patience is a thing that's in relative relatively short supply uh, when it comes to football these days. So um, it, it is nice to see that rewarded, and I guess it's nice as well that you you look at a guy who came in and. He, he he must have known that he was behind Gibbs. It was a bit touch and go at times, but you know, you you look at the other side of the pitch and Matthew Debuchy and the way that he's been agitating for a move ever since Hector Bellerin got into the team. You know, there was it didn't seem like uh, Debuchy was the kind of character who would say, "Okay, well, here's a challenge. I'm going to rise to that." But Monreal has done it the other way. Yeah, I, th- I do feel a little bit sorry for Debuchy because he, he was unfortunate with the injury that he yeah. got, particularly the one where Arnautovic shoved him. And also, I think you have to have a little bit of sympathy for a, an international in, in the European Championships year who wants to make sure he keeps his place in his national team. I can, un- I can understand why Debussy wants to go, and it is slightly unfortunate that he kind of arrived at the time that Bellerin was emerging. Um, but no, Monreal, you have to give him huge credit for being, for being prepared to kind of slog it out, to wait for his chance, to be, the squad, to be a good, reliable squad man. You never hear anything about Nacho Monreal as you say, agitating or expressing his discontent or thinking he should play more. He just seems like, almost like the sort of player that you don't really think exists anymore, Monreal. <laughs> and this is, again, this is with no knowledge of him whatsoever. I could be getting him completely wrong. He might have a, 
a bed made of gold and 20, 20 Lamborghinis at home. I don't know. <laughs> but he just seems like a good, solid pro for all of that's a cliche. And the player, to, to an extent, that he reminds me of is Aspilicueta at Chelsea, who, again, kind of came in, not really heralded as anything particularly special, and has sort of sat down, worked hard, kept quiet, and has now established himself in the first team. And Monreal did exactly the same thing. Mm. It's it's funny as well, isn't it, that we do tend to judge players, or players are judged, I should say. I don't want to lump us in on that bracket, but players are judged very much on what they did in in their last game. So you know, a couple of good games, and we've got the new Pele. A couple of bad games, and we've got the new you know Squillaci or Sylvester or one of those guys. But the consistency and being able to do it week after week after week uh, is not the easiest thing in the world, particularly as a defender. Yeah, and, I, and that's absolutely right. And, and you, you do, particularly, I guess, maybe with fullbacks, but even more so than centre halves, but you, you do tend to get that thing where they make one mistake and nowadays they are written off. They're, it's, they're beaten easily by, by, by a player on the outside. A goal comes and, and it's no, not good enough. Got, got to go, got to have an upgrade. Mm. It's quite a hard position to play nowadays, fullbacks, because there's so many different things that you're meant to be able to do, and so much of the focus is on attacking. Monreal's not bad going forward. He's not. He's not Roberto Carlos going forward, although having said that, that would mean he was shanking far more free kicks. <laughs> um, but he's, he's, really, he's really intelligent as a defender. His positioning is excellent. Uh, he slots in well with Kishani and Mertes after they, have, they clearly have a really good understanding. He hasn't, you know, when, when the history of the season is written and if Arsenal have won the title, no one is going to say, well, you know, the key man was actually Nacho Monreal. But you need, you need those 7 out of 10 players, the ones who are 7 out of 10 every single week. And that, that sounds, this is, this is one of the weirdest things about modern football. And I'm sure it's a modern thing, and it's not just that kind of, I've become more aware, of, uh, more aware of it as I've become an adult. I think that, that if you're not outstanding, people tend to forget you. And as soon as they forget you, they kind of write you off, and it's assumed that you can be upgraded. Yeah. Every team has two or three players who are just seven out of ten every week. You could probably make a case that Dennis Irwin at Man United, and those great United teams, was seven out of ten every week. Dennis Irwin wasn't one, isn't one of the great fullbacks of all time, but he very rarely made a mistake. He very rarely put a foot wrong, and he knew exactly what he was doing. And there's a real value in that, and I think that's a value that we overlook too often. What does it mean for Kieran Gibbs, who was a guy never quite established himself as a, a first choice for for England, but certainly had that potential? Uh, is now 26 years of age, and he's just seen the guy who's ahead of him, and rightly ahead of him. Uh, sign a brand new contract to keep him out of the club. I mean, wh- wh- what does what's in his mind? Would you say, uh, like, let's let's have a go at this. Let's look at this as a challenge, or maybe it's time to think about my future. Well, you'd hope the former, wouldn't you? You'd hope mm. that Gibbs would look at it and think that he can provide something that Monreal doesn't, because he does have that thrust from the fullback position. And you'd, you'd hope that he would think, right, he's shown me the way to buckle down and and win a place. So I'll do the same to him. That's kind of how a professional should react. But I do think, I think there's, I, you know, I didn't realise Gibbs was 26. I always think of him as being 21, but I suppose, <laughs> like all of us, he probably does get older. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a couple at Arsenal in that, in that sort of position. Oxford Chamberlain, similar. The, they can stay at Arsenal without question. They could probably finish their careers at Arsenal. They'd be squad players. They'd be in and out of the team. They'd get runs every now and again. They'd have times when, you know, three, four months when they were excellent, and they might find that they dropped out after a bad performance or after an injury, particularly with Gibbs, it has to be said, which is very sad. But then they could go to another team, a slightly smaller team, even if that's, say, a Liverpool or an Everton, a team that wouldn't necessarily want to be regarded as smaller than Arsenal, but as things stand are, and be first team, first choices every week, injuries permitting. And it's, that, I think that's a really difficult call to make because 
players always say they want to play, but they also always say they want to win things and they want to be playing in the Champions League. And there are a class of players for whom you probably can't have both. Mm. And I, I wonder whether Gibbs now is in that is in that bracket. And there's a chance that Arthur Chamberlain, if he doesn't start to kind of specialise in a position, which isn't entirely his fault, that he might fall into it too. And it's a, it's a really difficult call to make. He, you know, Arthur Chamberlain, like Gibbs, could be at Arsenal to the 35. You know, great servants of the club. Maybe not having played all of the football they want to play. Maybe not having featured in all of the big games they want to feature in. But whether you solve that by taking a step, you know, you could take a step down to take a step forward. That's possible. But then you could also just take a step down, and mm. that's the, the the gamble. I guess they have to they have to judge decide whether it's worth it. Do you feel like Oxley Chamberlain is at that kind of point in his career because he is only 22 still, and you know we know that players develop at different rates, and you know some guys do it really early in their career, some guys don't blossom until they're, you know, in their mid 20s. Um, but I, I mean, I think your point about him not nailing down a position is a really interesting one. Arsene Wenger always says he's going to play as a central midfielder, but often, you know, for the most part, he's played him uh, as a wide attacking sort of midfield player, and he has struggled a, a little bit for form. Um, going back to what we spoke about maybe at the start uh, and that word patience, is that not something that should be applied to Oxlade-Chamberlain at this point, given his age? Yeah, I think you're probably, you, you're right. There should, there should be, he certainly, I'm not saying that he should be thinking, I've got to leave now, my career is going nowhere. But I do think there might come a point with Oxlade-Chamberlain where he, he, he has to think, you know, he's not going to be playing in one of those three attacking positions in, behind Giroud because you've got Sanchez, Ozil and potentially Trezola when he comes back who can play in those roles, or Ramsey, who, who then seems to prefer kind of wide on the right to Oxford chamberlain and you've got Walcott, who can play there as well. Does Vendor trust Oxford-Chamberlain to play in one of those, holding one of those sort of two midfield roles? Not sure. Would he trust him if he had more experience? Yes. Can he get more experience without playing there? No. Mm. So it's a, it's a difficult situation. I think Oxford-Chamberlain, I've got to know, I think Oxford-Chamberlain, probably of all of those young Arsenal players, the possible exception of Wilshire. I think I think Arsenal Chamberlain's the best. I think he has absolutely everything. I think he would be a superb central midfielder. Then he's an excellent right winger, and I think he could play as a ten. But and you, you obviously could play him on the left as well. I'm not sure how, whether he's at his most effective there. But the fact that he can play in all those positions has kind of held him back a little bit. And I'm always reminded that you get this with, with Vendor, Vendor does it, but a lot of other managers do it. They tend to say that the, the young player who they are sort of shifting through the positions will end up playing in the one where they're not playing now. Mm. I remember Martinez at Everton did it with Barkley. He kept he kept playing Barkley wide on the right and saying he'll be number 10. And then he played him at number 10. It didn't quite work. And he said, oh, he'll be a deep-line midfielder. Callum, it's happened with Callum Chambers as well at Arsenal. And I'm just really conscious that there comes a point in a player's career where they need to be able to specialise in a position. And my worry with Oxford chamberlain is I'm not sure when Wenger, for kind of admirable reasons, and not reasons that you shouldn't can really criticise them for. Not quite sure when that point comes for Oxley Chamberlain. Isn't it also incumbent on the player when he gets a chance in a position that is probably going to be uh, the one that he might specialise in to perform to a level where you know uh, it, it sort of makes up the manager's mind for him a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And Oxley Chamberlain, the, one of the one of the, the, the most important things in, in the Oxley Chamberlain case, I guess, is that you speak to anybody about Alexander Chamberlain and his, you know, the fact that he does have an extremely grounded, sensible, very humble approach to his career shines through. He is a genuinely lovely kid. Although he's 22, he probably doesn't a kid anymore, but he's a, he's a lovely young man yeah. in Alex Oxley Chamberlain, and I think that's really important because he will have that patience. 
I agree with you completely. He he has to take the sort of grasp the nettle, doesn't he, and say, you know, this is this is a position I want to play in. I will not let you drop me. But the thing is, I'm not sure how realistic that is, given some of the competition he faces in those positions, and also the fact that if you're in and out of the side, can you ever get the momentum up to really shine in any of, in any of those positions when you are given a chance? I'm not 100% certain you can. Mm. It may well be that he, he gets, you know, there's an injury at some point, a minor injury to to, to Trezola when he comes back. And also Chamberlain gets a run of five games in central midfield, and then he thinks, right, he's ready to do this now. He's going to be my first choice central midfield alongside either Kotlan or El Nemi. And at that point, that's when Oxford Chamberlain kind of blossoms. But there's also a risk that he plays a couple of games when Cazorla's injured, Cazorla comes back, gets chosen ahead of him, and Oxford Chamberlain's back where he started. And that's that's the danger. It's not it's not necessarily the case that that will happen, but it mm. would be my worry if I was sort of tasked with looking after his career, which I'm not. <laughs> um, speaking of another Southampton man and another guy whose who's career I find him perplexing Theo Walcott um, he, he spent 10 years at Arsenal at this point this week 10 years ago he signed for the club from Southampton and there's a, I don't know if it's just me but there's an element of surrealism about Theo Walcott and his career in the sense that he arrives at Arsenal at 16 he's taken to the World Cup he, he's never even played a first uh, team game for Arsenal all of a sudden he's in the England squad going to a World Cup bizarre um, he's capable of these outstanding moments uh, brilliant goals sublime finishes but he's just as likely even at this point in his career at 26 years of age to fall over the ball or run it out of play there is just this weirdness like he, he, he I've said it before on this podcast he sort of makes my head hurt because you, on the one hand you go wow he can do that and then it's like well, why can't he do this this most, this most basic of things what's your uh, take on the 10 years of, of Walcott at Arsenal Probably quite similar, to be honest. I, I, I'm still not 100% certain what I think of Theo Walcott. I, I know he's a, he's a very good footballer. There's no question about that. I, I don't know whether he's a world-class footballer. I don't know if he's ever going to become a world-class footballer. But then at the same time, I kind of don't know whether I judge him more harshly because the expectations were so high at the start. So he's the 16-year-old who comes, and as you say, he's signed by Arsenal when he's only played a handful against Southampton. He goes to the, goes to the 2000, 2006 World Cup, and you kind of think, "Oh my God, this you know this this could be going to be the next sort of insanely brilliant thing about English football." Although quite what the first one was, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> but, you know, you kind of think he is the next sensation, and then after that, I always think that no matter what they do, unless they turn out to be Lionel Messi, they're kind of onto a loser to an extent because you are always thinking, "Well, fine, you're good at that, and you're, you're this good, but why aren't you that good? Why haven't you lived up to my own kind of invented expectations?" I think what Arsenal have in Walcott is, a, is a, very, very, a very, very high quality striker or winger, which is extremely, extremely kind of valuable. And, and look, if they were trying to sign him now, how much would they, if Theo Walcott was playing for Newcastle and is it, was exactly as good as he is now, how much would Arsenal need to pay to sign him? Probably 25, 30 million quid. Yeah, but would you, you, would you sign him though based on the, the flaws that are in his game? I mean, there's a the, the video going around this week, you know, his best goals and like some of the goals are just absolutely amazing. But in two of his best goals for Arsenal, he falls over. <laughs> before, he, before he puts the ball in the net and he, re, he reacts very quickly there's one against Newcastle one against Chelsea and like credit to him for the way that he, he dealt with it but I mean this is the, the, the conundrum yeah no I know what you mean and you wouldn't he's one of those that you wouldn't necessarily yeah if he was playing for Newcastle you wouldn't necessarily look at him and think I definitely want my sign him for £30 million I think there'd be clubs who would consider signing him for £30 million mm. 
but, but then yeah, well, it's, it's a really difficult one it's, and it's a matter of personal taste to an extent although I should point out the best uh, kind of highlight video I've seen this week was the one that Sunderland released when they sold Danny Graham for Blackburn which was Danny it was tagged Danny Graham's best moment in a Sunderland shirt it was the one goal he scored for St. Everton that went in off his arse and you sort of think I mean, just don't release that video just please don't release that video just say bye to him thank him for his service don't mock him on Twitter um I don't know the thing with the thing with, with Walcott, and I agree with you that he is—he's not complete. I think there is a there's a parallel with him and Rooney uh, of young English sensations that never really develop because I'm not sure that in English football we, we quite want players to develop. I think we like the idea to some extent of a player landing fully formed, and we just let them get on with it. And it's you've got to let them play their natural game. You can't overcoach them. You can't. You know, don't take the street footballer out of them. Certainly in Rooney's case, there's always been the logic. And I think what that does to some extent is stunt their development. I think if you look at the player Rooney has been, Rooney as a 26, 27-year-old was better than Rooney as a 16-year-old, but not by that much. Rooney was pretty much at 16 as good as he was ever going to be. There was some improvement, but not a huge amount. Mm. You compare that to someone like, it's a different position, someone like Andres Iniesta, Iniesta develops and develops and develops. And you watched him when he was 22, 23, and you thought, my God, this is a, he's a player. Watch him at 28, 29. He's incredible. And, the, and that just keeps happening. I think both Walcott and Rooney have... It's not a mechanism I necessarily understand particularly, but it's, there's certainly something with English football that says, you are a sensation at 16. That is as good as you're going to be. Don't worry about trying to get better. Mm. And that seems to have happened with Walcott. I also think kind of the flip side to Watford Chamberlain, that he suffered from his own personal belief that he has to be a number nine. And that certainly distracted him for a couple of years. Because he could have been a really good winner. And he didn't seem to develop as a winner because he kept thinking, I want to be a striker. I don't need to develop as a winner. I want to be a striker. Walcott, I think that held him back to the as well. Is that Walcott? You're... Yeah, that's Walcott. Yeah. yeah. I think there was. He, he seems to have died down a bit now because he is playing as a striker, although not all the time. But certainly, when would it be? 2013, 2014, mm. maybe even earlier, around the time of the, when, it, when it looked like he wouldn't sign the contract. But one of the big things was, I want to be guaranteed that I play as a striker and that's one of the things I hate most about football you play where the manager tells you to play Yeah. and whether whether you like it or not is really immaterial you, you play where you're told to play and you do your job and if you're really unhappy about it you leave you don't you don't demand to play in a certain position it's what it, the risk of sounding like a sort of awful hipster you don't really hear foreign players doing it it seems to be a uniquely English thing mm. that you have to play in certain positions Gerard did it all of the time I don't, I don't want to be a right winner I've got to be a central midfielder I don't want to be a number 10 I've got to be a central midfielder I don't want to be a central midfielder I want to be a number 10 and it's just play where you're told to play. You're crying out loud and get on with it and yeah. try and specialise in a position. But if you, don't, if, you, if you can't, then play, you know, do what you, you have to do. But Walcott certainly, yeah, for a couple of years was, was told or seemed, seemed to be telling Wenger, I have to play the striker. And I, I do think that held him back to an extent. It's quite interesting because I think where, you know, when, when those stories emerged, people were like, well, I don't know if Theo Walcott could be a striker in this Arsenal team, the way that Arsenal play. You know, they'd, they'd had Giroud up front for a couple of seasons and it seemed like that he was the fulcrum for the attack. And Walcott obviously has very different qualities and very different skills. Uh, and there were some games this season that might have changed people's minds. But equally, what we've seen is that when Walcott's been put back in the wide position, people I think would prefer him if he's going to be in the team to be a striker rather than rather than a wide man well you, you don't necessarily need him now that's the thing because because there is obviously there's all kinds of can but you've got Sanchez you've got Ramsey you've got Kinsola they can all play in those wide, in those wider roles yeah. probably better than Walcott and, and Vendor to be fair I think Vendor's got that one spot on he's, he's basically said that when they're both fit uh, you 
there are certain games that Giroud is suited to, and that's games where you need a striker who can hold the ball up, who can build, who can essentially punch into your kind of the pivot of your play, and that tends to be against the bigger sides on the on the more on the, the higher pressure occasions, just as the nature of the game. If Arsenal are sitting back and need to counter attack, you play Walcott, mm. um, and I think I think that is probably the that's probably not far off the truth. I, to be honest, against. And it's what the bottom thirteen of the Premier League at home. You could probably play either of them, and Arsenal should be expected to score goals. Although maybe not, I guess this season when everything's kind of upside down and topsy turvy. But I think, yeah, if you if you're going to sit and play on the counter, I think you probably Walcott is better suited to that system. If you need someone who can who can build the you can build the play off, who can hold the ball up, then that's probably Giroud. And having that contrast isn't a bad thing for the team. No. But the question is whether the players themselves will wear it being told essentially the certain types of games you're not going to play in. Mm. Well, you know, maybe if this is what you have to do to win a title for the first time since 2004, you know, they can just uh, suck it up, basically. Uh, and that get... would be, yeah, that's my attitude, absolutely. I think, I think that it is, it, I mean, it's a, again, it's a horrible cliche, but it's a squad game. It, yeah. it, and what you need within that squad is having as many different, not options, but varieties, I guess, as possible. And Giroud and, Bender, Giroud and Walter are very different players. But that doesn't mean you can't have both of them in your team for when you know when you need different aspects of a striker. Sure, Alexis Sanchez on his way back from injury. He was injured November 29th, so we're heading on basically two months, uh, eight weeks anyway since he's played a game of football. Apparently, the longest break uh, for injury that he's ever had in his career. Um, if you know, I think it was inevitable that at some point the physical demands of what he's gone through over the last couple of years, we're, we're going to catch up with him. Um, so you're looking at him coming to Arsenal off the back of a 50-game season for Barcelona with internationals, with a World Cup. He comes to Arsenal, plays straight away, played 52 times for Arsenal in his first season, played the Copa America all the way to the final. There were friendlies throughout that year as well. Transatlantic travel came back uh, this season, was pitched into action way too early, obviously because of uh, because of the injury crisis, and eventually something went snap. So could we, um, while obviously you don't want any player to be injured at any time, look at it as a sort of, not a blessing in disguise, but in a way an opportunity to give a rest to a man who won't be told that he has to rest if a manager is going to do that, not to mention the fact that you know he's so good and so important that it's really difficult for a manager to leave him out anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. There is one caveat to that, which is that obviously with it being a hamstring injury, you or any of those kind of those injuries, the danger is that once it gets weakened by one tight tear, mm. then it, the next tear is always coming. So that, that, that's a potential problem. But no, I I think Wenger he wouldn't admit it, but I think he got it wrong with Sanchez to an extent, and I think he became a little bit beholden to, to him. And look, Sanchez's desire to play. You can't fault him for that at all. It's an incredibly kind of admirable quality. But there comes a point where a manager has to have the strength to say, you're not playing, this is bad for you. Bender, I think, first used the term red zone to describe Sanchez about a year ago and said there is a danger he's going to go into the red zone, he will need a rest. He never got that rest, as you say. He didn't get it in the summer to the top of America. He came back in. He'd not had a proper holiday. He'd not had a proper break. It was only a matter of time. Part of me wonders whether Bender knew that and he felt that the, the easiest way to give him a rest was to, was basically for, for, to be so deep into the red zone that he had to rest, mm. and that's what happened against Norwich. I suspect that's not the case. I don't think the manager would do that, but you, you do wonder whether then they kind of decided, look, if he's going to keep playing, then I'll play him for as long as possible, and then, then we'll see what happens. 
Um, but certainly, I, I don't think, presume, providing his hamstrings hold up, which you've every reason to believe they will, providing Arsenal don't take a risk in bringing him back too early, I think that having essentially two months off is, is no bad thing. Um, and the other thing I think that Arsenal maybe aren't getting enough praise for, and to an extent they're lucky that the lead has been so kind of chaotic, is they've come through that, that phase without, without Sanchez, who, who was so important to them at the start of the season, pretty well. You know, they're, they're top. They, 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 they have missed him. You, you always miss a player like Sanchez, but they haven't missed him to the extent that they've dropped loads of unnecessary points. Other players have stepped up into the bridge. That suggests that Arsenal aren't as reliant on Sanchez as I think we probably all thought they were. Mm. I think, you know, when you look at uh, Sanchez being absent, they lost Cazorla in the same game and also uh, Francis Coquelin the week before. So those are three really key players for Arsenal to have coped without over the last uh, over the last two months, really. Um, and again, you know, to be top of the table with those players missing on top of Wilshire, on top of Welbeck, on top of, of Rosicki, you know, it does speak to a, a, a bit of character and mental strength and, and also depth of squad. Yeah, the one player who I think who really shines through in that is Joel Campbell. Yeah, which again is kind of unlikely sentences of 2016. Um, but yeah, Campbell, who, who appears to be the world's greatest throughball player, which has come <laughs> as a bit of a surprise to, to me. Maybe others who watch a lot of Costa Rican football would have known better. But no, Campbell's really stood up, and I think there was a lot of there was a lot of doubt at the start of the season when he was kind of around the squad, and people thought, well, what on earth are you sticking with him for? He's clearly not good enough. But he's been really he's been really important for them the last sort of month, Campbell. And having that depth has been crucial. But Ozil, you know, Ozil obviously was missing in Stoke last week, but Ozil's been superb in the two months since, since Sanchez played. Uh, I think Ramsey's done quite well. I think other, Giroud obviously has, has kind of come to the fore. They, they have got, yeah, greater reserves of, of not in terms of numbers, but also great, greater reserves of character than, than maybe is traditionally associated with Arsenal. And that's, that's a really good thing. Whether it's enough to win them the lead, I don't know. Mm. But it certainly should convince them they can they can um, they can compete on on three fronts for the rest of the campaign, and it might even persuade Wenger that he can occasionally rest Sanchez. Yeah, it would mean that he doesn't get an injury in his absence for eight weeks. Yeah, good point. That actually I hadn't thought of that. Very quickly, looking ahead to the game uh, the weekend, Arsenal versus Chelsea. The enmity between uh, Jose Mourinho and Arsene Wenger won't be a factor in this particular one, uh, but nor will the fact uh, that most of the Chelsea squad appear to hate Jose Mourinho by the end of it as well. Um, they, you know, they look like. Um, maybe not back to their best, but they look like a team that is actually willing to try again. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be a tough uh, tough task for Arsenal, particularly off the back of two uh, very difficult away games. Yeah, absolutely. But they've done well, I think. To get, I, mean, I know it's only two draws, and I know draws aren't acceptable anymore. And not allowed to take in like it's a good point. <laughs> I think I think points at Stoke and Anfield are good points, whatever the circumstances. The, the, the draw at Anfield obviously hurt because of the the nature of it. But I think if you if you said to to Arsenal at the start of the game at the start of the season you'll get a point from Anfield they probably would have gone yeah all right fine um, and it's the same with Stoke that is one of the toughest places to go even even now that they're not sort of hoofing long balls down uh, by Chesney's, Chesney's throat um, I think that the Chelsea game is really important probably psychologically more than anything Chelsea have had a bit of a hoodoo over them I think it, it, this is a good opportunity to beat them and to it's tempting to say a bit, but beat them well, and to say, look, we are not, we're not scared of you anymore. There's not, there is no kind of hex here. Mm. Um, Chelsea are kind of improved. They're still not that good, and they they obviously let three in against Everton. Although Everton, at least I suppose you know you will at least score three against Everton. So that that makes conceding three less of a less of a bad thing. But they are not there to be beaten. But if Arsenal can't beat them this weekend, I think that would be. Uh, problematic and slightly troubling for Arsenal. They should they, they should win this one. It's the first time in years and years and years that you probably look at Arsenal against Chelsea and say Arsenal really should win this. Mm. 
Um, and it is a good opportunity to get that kind of monkey off their back to some extent and say, look, we are, you know, we're not, we're not scared of this team anymore. And that's, that's really important. They have to do that with City and with United in recent years. They've done it. Chelsea, I guess, are the, the final one. All right. Well, look, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that that happens. Rory, as ever, great to talk to you. Thanks very much. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed to Rory. You can find him writing about football in The Times, obviously, or you can follow him on Twitter, if you like, at Rory Smith Times, at Rory Smith Times. Right then, we're going to look ahead very briefly to the Chelsea game in a couple of moments. But right now, this. Arsenal Football Club today reminded supporters that all life events are subject to change at the whim of television companies. In particular, Trevor and Mary Wigglesbottom. Your wedding that was scheduled for Saturday at 12 has now been moved to Monday afternoon at 3.30. Chairman Sir Chips Keswick said, There's nothing we can do. Now excuse me while I go and count my money. This bulletin has now been moved to next Thursday fortnight. Right then, we're going to look ahead very quickly to the Chelsea game on Sunday, on Sky, I guess, is it? Super Sunday? Splendid Sunday? Stick it up your hole, we don't care what time you put the games on Sunday? Anyway, team news from an Arsenal point of view is positive. Mesut Ozil is back. I don't think there's any surprise there. I think there was um, more than a touch of caution to resting him last weekend against Stoke. We did say this on the Arscast Extra on Monday that perhaps it was more about saving him for these games uh, than risking him in a game like Stoke where you just don't quite know what might happen. He's back. Alexis, Arsene Wenger talking about Alexis, and he's saying he's still a little bit cautious. He says we can't afford a setback with him. A setback would mean a very long period out, so we don't want to take a gamble. He said the signs he's shown in training this week are positive. The doubt is that he's been out for a long time, and the risk of a setback is there if you go too early. To be clear on all the tests is one thing. Uh, after he's clear on training is another thing. And after the intensity of a big game, you can never repeat in a training session. So basically, I suspect we'll see Alexis on the bench on uh, on Sunday, and I reckon he'll warm up the shite out of him, if that's not too weird a turn of phrase. But, um, yeah, maybe that's just what he's going to do. You know, try and ease him back in, as big a game as Chelsea is, and it obviously is. Um, you know, he could use him in the last half hour rather than, you know, uh, stick him on from the start. Of course, if you do have somebody like Alexis, uh, recharged, ready to go, I think he's going to be wound up to fuck, seriously. Eight weeks without playing football for Alexis Sanchez, he's going to be like like climbing the walls, wanting wanting to get out on the football pitch again. So I think that hopefully uh, will translate itself into uh, performances. And just going back to what we were saying uh, earlier with Rory, is that he has played a huge amount of football over the last few years with very very little rest. And I wonder, even when he was brilliant for us, if he was ever like 100%, if the batteries had ever been fully recharged. And maybe after these eight weeks out, maybe that's what we're going to see. We're going to see an Alexis that's, that's just full of energy again, that feels fresh and vital. <laughs> I don't know what that means. It just sounded like a good thing to say. He feels vital. Sounds good though, right? He feels vital. So, you know, that could be good. And uh, Francis Coquelin... Back in training, back in full training. There are pictures of him running around, tackling, being tackled. You know, so he can't be far away from a return to first-team action as well. We've got El Nenny in the squad, so he's going to make his debut at some point to give us a bit more depth. Danny Welbeck apparently back in full training next week. So it's beginning to look a little bit... um, 
a little bit better from the injury point of view. Thomas Rzitzki, I think he's playing an under-21 game either tonight or tomorrow night. So just to give him a bit of match practice, then he could be in and around the squad as well. So, you know, ideally, uh, hopefully, uh, everyone else can stay fit once these guys come back, that we're not swapping players in and out, that we can maintain this depth right to the end of the season because we are going to need it. Those fixture changes haven't been particularly kind either. The Everton away game now takes place on a Saturday morning and we play in Barcelona on the Wednesday night. So that doesn't give us a great deal uh, of time to to recover for that one. Everton away, always a very difficult place to go, as we know. Uh, And of course, when you're coming off an away European trip with tired legs, you know, it's going to be really important that we're able to mix our squad up a bit. So uh, fingers crossed all those guys uh, can stay fit once they come back. Um, as for the game itself, you, you just don't know. Hopefully we can break that hoodoo against Chelsea. It's been a while. Obviously we beat them in the uh, the Community Shield, but it's in the league, isn't it? That's where it really counts. Community Shield was grand and nice and, you know, sunny day out and all that kind of stuff. But you want to do it in the league. You want to take points off them. You know, as shit as things went for Chelsea, they still had that thing over us, didn't they? You know, they've had a disastrous season. It's been a complete clusterfuck of mayhem and bullshit, and yet they still managed to beat us. Now, of course, some of that was down to the referee and, you know, the whole lot, but still, it's annoying. So it would be very nice and timely to win this game on Sunday and great for our, uh, you know, pursuit of the Premier League title. Um, Quite what the team is going to be, I I don't know, but it's going to be a big, big game. Big game. Come on, Arsenal. Just, you know, win and stuff. That's all. That's all you have to do. You know, there's, there's, there's three things you can do in a football match. You can win, you can lose, or you can draw. So just don't do the two things that we don't want. Do the one thing that we do want and win and win well. And hopefully, you know, John Terry will fall on his face or something. That would be good. But, you know, I'll take him staying upright for an Arsenal win. You know, I'm not that invested in seeing him humiliated, really. No, I'll just take the win. That'd be good. So, look, James and I will be here on Monday to discuss everything that happens in that particular Chelsea game. We'll have an Arscast extra for you then. I'll be back next week with an Arscast regular. So, until then, keep fingers crossed for the weekend. Have a good one. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right, I, what I did um, uh, for this bit, I actually wrote a song. Yeah, it's true. I wrote a song uh, for Sky. Um, I'm not the most accomplished guitar player in the world, uh, but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, hopefully this comes off. Okay, here we go.
Thank you.